epic way, filled with stories, uh, narrative, poetry, parables, rather than just a set of systematic theology volumes. You've given to us your truth as we've seen it lived out and revealed through different people, different periods of time. And we're so grateful that we live in the new covenant where we don't have to relate to you by bringing an animal and trying to placate your wrath or to appease you or to conquer uh, new land in a physical sense. But it's been done for us in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, no more graphically than in the book of Numbers, perhaps, can we appreciate what we're told in the Gospel of John, that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're thankful for it. Now I pray that you'd open up our minds and our hearts, that we might study and understand your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. One of Leon Uris's greatest works was a book called Exodus that describes the passage of many persecuted Jews on a ship that came from Europe into Israel in the 1940s. And as the ship was filled with all of these persecuted people, it was uh, a refugee ship, essentially. It was teeming with people who couldn't wait to get into the new land. And as they approached the port of Haifa, bad news came to them. They were turned back and not allowed by the British mandate to enter the land. And you can imagine what it must have been like for those Jews who had been persecuted in Europe and wanted to escape the pogroms of Hitler to now all of a sudden not be permitted passage into the land of Israel that they longed and sacrificed to get into. Their hearts dropped. They were discouraged. Many of them jumped overboard in that last-ditch effort to make it to shore, no matter what the cost. Many died in the process. A very, very heart-wrenching story. Many of the children of Israel, a few weeks ago, uh, not a few weeks ago in terms of chronology, but in terms of our reading, were discouraged because of the way, you remember, they tried to get through Edom, and the king of Edom said, no way, Jose. Well, he didn't really say that, but no, you can't come through my land. And so they had to go around Edom. It says the heart of the people was discouraged because of the way. But imagine what it would be like if people on that ship that was going toward Haifa in the 1940s, what if many of them actually decided to stay aboard. They said, no, we really like it right here. We're close enough. We just like the sea. And we miss the ocean so much. We just like to live right close to the land, but we don't want to go in. We'd rather just live close enough. You think, well, that's weird. It doesn't make sense that they came all of that way and sacrificed only to stop so short. Well, we see this happening with a group of people in chapter 32. Two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh come to the Transjordan overlooking the land of Israel where Moses died. And they decided, we don't want to go into the land. We like it right here. Why sacrifice? Why work any harder than this? This is good enough. 
When all along God had said, no, I'm going to bring you into a new land, it will be over the Jordan River, not on this side of the Jordan. You're going to cross over the Jordan to get into it. Now we're going to compare this group of people to what I'll call border believers. They're on the border, and I don't mean uh, on the cutting edge. They're on the wrong edge. You know, we like to say, we're on the cutting edge of technology. We're on the cutting edge of spirituality. Well, there's a group that's on the edge, but it's the wrong edge. It's the wrong border. God wants them all the way in the land, not living on the edge. And there are people who have been redeemed, like the children of Israel, redeemed from Egypt. And they've come through this long journey, but they never enter in to everything that God has for them. They're on the border. This is good enough. I don't want to grow anymore. I like it right here. Let me just live on the border. It's sort of like the dog with the bone in his mouth. And as the master, you've got a nice juicy steak. And you want to give that dog a blessing. And the dog is sitting there wagging its tail, but it's got the bone in his mouth. <laughs> and you're trying to take it out, and every time you go, Now, you'd love to articulate to that dog, you dummy. I've got a steak for you. Let go of that lame bone, and I'll give you something awesome. Arr. He's content having the bone. Just that faint taste of beef seems to be sufficient. The children of Israel, two and a half tribes at least, on the border, are like holding the bone. And they won't let go of it, even though God has something for them. And I would say that this is a type of carnal believer, or a believer that lives according to the flesh. Unfortunately, there are believers in the church who get saved. They get so excited, but it's like there's never a root system. They're never controlled by the Holy Spirit. They're still controlled by the flesh. And the flesh has taken such root in their lives, and they derive a certain amount of pleasure from the things of the flesh. And, you know, I think the most miserable Christians of all are border believers. Saved, but not satisfied in the Spirit. Not controlled by the Spirit. Living a life of the flesh. Do you remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, and he named these types of believers, he said, uh, the natural man that is an unbeliever, apart from Christ, just who we are by nature, apart from God, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foreign to him. They don't make any sense. He doesn't receive the things of the Spirit, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But then he said, the spiritual man judges or discerns or understands all things, but he himself is not rightly judged or understood by any man. Now, two types of people. Natural, spiritual. Then he writes to them in chapter 3, And I, brethren, I could not write unto you as spiritual, but as babes, even those who are carnal in Christ. And he said, For I wanted to feed you with strong meat, but you weren't able to bear it because you are still carnal. And chapter 3, at least the introduction of it, is a reprimand to a group of believers who should have grown by that time, but have decided to stay in that maze of carnality. 
saved, but still under the dominance, not of the spirit in all areas of their life, but of the flesh, carnality. And that really is what I think is represented in a spiritual New Testament uh, type or anti-type um, in this chapter. Now, the children of Reuben, verse 1, and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer, the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad, the children of Reuben, came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, this is Aaron's kid, his son who's taken over, and to the elders of the congregation, saying, now bear with me as I read this, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, uh, and the rest. Verse 4. The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and do not take us over the Jordan. Now look back in verse 1, this key word, they saw. What is it they saw? They saw the land of Gilead that they were standing upon, or it was close by. The land of Gilead, if you come with us to Israel, we can point it out, but we won't go over the Jordan. We'll just show you the heights of Gilead. It's between two rivers. And if you've got a map in the back of your Bible, you can look and see where it's at. Uh, the river up by the Sea of Galilee that runs eastward into the present-day country of Jordan is the Yarmouk River, And then down south, midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, is the Jabbok River, also running eastward. And then from the Jordan River, which is below sea level, it rises to a height of fertile plains, beautiful, rich soil. Uh, in the area of present-day Jordan, there's all sorts of walnut trees. There's, uh, again, rich soil, lots of grass. It's excellent cattle-grazing country. In fact... Bedouins still to this day go there for sort of a resort. It's cool. It's got more rainfall than a lot of other parts of Jordan because of its elevation. It's, it's a beautiful spot. We come pretty close to it when we take the bus ride from the Sea of Galilee up through uh, uh, the Golan Heights. It's up near that area of Golan where Gilead is, and it's just gorgeous. And so they saw that. And it looked great. Now, they hadn't seen the other side of Jordan yet, but they just saw this, and this is good enough. Why go any further? I know God promised us that land, but I'd rather take this land. And so they saw it, and they were taken by their senses. We might correspond this to the lust of the eye that John talked about. Uh, look down in verse 11. I'm kind of skipping ahead here. Moses says, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. Now, one of the problems with this two and a half tribes is they weren't, well, they were half-hearted. What they saw was enough. It, it, it took their eyes. It delighted their eyes. And what they apprehended with their senses was more important than, than taking that step of faith, going through the Jordan. After all, you know, look, there's uh, Jericho and there's Ai and there's, you know, all sorts of bad things that could happen to us. We don't want to fight those battles. We'd rather stay on this side. So they saw it and they made their appeal. 
in verse 5, Therefore they said, If we have found favor in your sight, that's to Mo, Moses, let this land be given to your servants as a possession and do not take us over the Jordan. Why work when you can stay right here? Why wait for a promised land when this is good enough? This is good enough. Why go any further than this? The Bible tells us that we should walk in the Spirit. That is, we should conduct our life according to spiritual principles. And also, walking denotes progress. Whenever you're walking somewhere, you're going toward a goal. But there are those who don't walk in the Spirit. They cruise in the Spirit. Rather than first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, it's like, just stick it in neutral. Path of least resistance and whatever gives me immediate gratification. You remember what Satan told Jesus as Jesus was taken into the wilderness by the Spirit. And Satan appeared to him and basically said, why go through the hassle of the cross? It's so painful. I know why you've come. You've come to redeem the world. I'll give you the world right now. All you have to do is indulge me for just a moment, bow down and worship me, and it will be yours. And he showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment. He said, for these are mine, and I give them to whomever I wish. Why go the way of the cross? Just bow down right now, and you can have it without the pain. Immediate gratification. Of course, Jesus rebuked him and said, you know, get behind me, Satan, and uh, rebuked him with the word of God and told him that it's only God that you worship. So they saw it. They lusted after it. They're like the dog with the bone in the mouth, the stakes in front of them, but they don't want to give up that bone. Let us stay right here. Essentially, Gilead was a replacement to these two and a half tribes. Now, we've just read about two. We'll read about the other half in a few verses, but it's a replacement. The land they were to occupy was on the other side of the Jordan. Now, it's like, look, we're out of Egypt. We're through the wilderness. We'll just swap. We'll replace what we should have with this. I see a lot of times believers that I think try to replace the full, rich life that God has for them with something else. And just like there's a replacement, you know, it's like I'm out of the wilderness, I'm out of Egypt, but I don't want to go all the way into the land, I'll take this. I think there's believers who do the same thing. It's like, well, listen, I'm not a, a heathen anymore, so I don't party like heathens, so I'll just have Christian parties and, you know, mirror images of whatever the world has, but just tag Christian onto it. I don't want to have a full commitment to Christ. I still want everything the world has to offer me. In fact, the ideology among many believers is let's prove to the world that we are hipper than thou, that we have all that they have, except our parties, our gigs are just cooler than theirs. Rather than turning from the ways of the world and not trying to mirror what they have and call it, well, it's, you know, Christian versus the world, just Entering into everything God has for us. Essentially a replacement. Verse 6, Moses said to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, 
Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? They wanted to sit, veg. Why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given to them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went to the valley of Eshkol, they saw the land, and they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel, so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt, from twenty years old and above, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Moses heard this request, and it was like rerun city in his mind. It's like, you know, I've been here before. This sounds awfully familiar. This sounds sort of like what happened at Kadesh Barnea many years ago when those 12 spies went in, came back, gave the bad report, and the hearts of the people were discouraged. And he's thinking, oh, no. What are you guys, like dirt or something? You want to stay back in the wilderness when God has promised you the land? And he remembered how the entire congregation froze in utter fear because of all of the stories of what lay on the other side of the Jordan. He knew that all it took was a few people who had that spirit of fear and disbelief. And it could permeate through the whole crowd. And so, the Lord's anger, he goes on in verse 13, was aroused against Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. He's telling them the story from the past. You know, this is a young generation. Uh, they'd heard the stories, but they need to be refreshed. Until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Now back in verse 7, here's the problem that he sees. Why will you discourage the hearts of the children of Israel from going over the land into the land which the Lord has given them? You know that we can discourage other people by our lifestyle? The hearts of the people were discouraged because of the way it was going around Edom, but now Moses sees that these people can be discouraged by other people who have decided, hey man, I'm going to hang, all right? I'm not going to continue to grow anymore. You are an example. It's not just me that's the example. You all are examples to one another of faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is contagious. When you see a person who is brimming with trust in Christ, it's so contagious. It's awesome. You're inspired. But so is unbelief and fear, also contagious. And you can discourage people, and Moses is afraid of a little leaven that would leaven the whole lump. Let me just admonish, especially you older believers in the faith. You've been saved now for a while. Are you still growing in Christ? Have you reached a plateau, sort of like the two and a half tribes? This is good enough. I like it here. Let our cows hang out here. These other tribes, they're all excited about going and let them go in the land. Have you stagnated or are you still growing? Is Christ still exciting to you? Is reading the Bible exciting to you? 
Are you an example to the younger believers? Or perhaps you look at younger believers sort of with a little disdain. You think, well, you know, they're a little young. I'm mature in Christ, and I know these, you know, we see young believers, they get excited about anything, right? John 3, 16, man, did you hear this? Look at, for God so loved the world. And you're thinking, yeah, that's neat. I remember being that excited. Now you're mature and stale and stagnant in Christ, and, you know, you want everybody else to be there with you. Or are you growing? I love seeing the excitement. I love seeing the young generation coming and getting excited over the things of Christ. I have people from other fellowships say, gosh, there's so many young people in your church. And it's, it's great that some of these young people are going to be, uh, you know, maybe leaders in the future. You know, a lot of these young people are on my staff. And I seek to get younger and younger on the staff and as leaders in the church and push them higher and see the baton passed so that that generation is experiencing Christ now and inspiring others. And it uh, might be time for some of us to move over and let them take over because God wants to do a new and a fresh work. Well, some of them, their heart wasn't right there. Okay, so he gives them this long lecture. And so they came near to him in verse 16, and they said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. Oh, if you were to find out the history and see what happens to these two and a half tribes, it's very, very interesting. And this is why it is a mistake what they're trying to do. These two and a half tribes were the first group to break fellowship with the rest of the children of Israel. After all, they're at some distance away from the heart of the land. Uh, communication isn't very good. And in Joshua chapter 22, they had gone into the land to help their brothers fight the battles, but they go back now toward the other side of the Jordan. They build this huge altar. They didn't mean anything by it except, you know, God's been faithful, and this is a reminder to us that God has been faithful. But the other tribes heard about the altar and thought... Look at these two and a half tribes are going to worship God in a, their own way. And they're going to sacrifice animals on, these, on this altar. And so the rest of the children of Israel came against these two and a half tribes to wipe them out. They were going to kill them, utterly destroy them. They thought these guys are idolaters. Now they weren't. There was just no communication. They had broken fellowship. Also later on in the book of 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 10, when the tribes of Israel start breaking up and lose their strength. The first ones to go are the people on the other side of the Jordan. Because though it's a beautiful place for livestock, there's no defense system. So it is with the carnal believer. They might think, I love it right here. My cows are getting fat. But there's no defense in their life. They're not really in Christ. Well, they're in Christ, but they're not completely governed by the Spirit. They're easy prey. They're the first ones to get picked off. Also, we read about in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 5, that Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Gadara, or the Gadarenes. This is where the tribe of Gad settled. And there was a man who was demon-possessed. And Jesus cast the demons into what? Pigs. Now, what are the Jews doing raising pigs? Well, they had fallen from that place of keeping the law of God into what was expedient for them in their business. 
When Jesus delivers the demon-possessed man, okay, a few pigs get killed, but the men of the Gadarenes come to Jesus and they say, get out of here. We don't want your kind around. You just ruined our business. Now, Jesus could have said, why is your business unkosher meat? But the point being, they didn't want Jesus around because their business was more important than the soul of a human being. They had had, uh, degenerated from that place uh, that God wanted them. The other side. They came near, and they're striking a deal now with Moses. Look, we'll build cheap folds for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them into their place, and our little ones will dwell in fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes till every one of the children of Israel has received inheritance, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan." Interesting. They're ready to fight for God. They're ready to help their brothers. They're ready to fight for the land, but they don't want to live in it. They're ready to go off and serve God and sort of leave their families unprotected. I mean, they had to leave their families and livestock in the cities that they would build for them, go to the other side of the Jordan, fight however long it would take, and then come back. I think this is a description of the carnal believer who will say, yeah, I'm ready to serve God, but they've gotten their values so mixed up, they neglect their own families. The home life suffers. There's not spiritual life going on inside the home. Yet, in the name of God, we want to go out and serve God. Really? I want you to serve God too, but I want you to begin at home. I want you to love your wives. I want you to nurture your wives, husband, and wives to submit unto your husband as you would unto the Lord. Train your children in the ways of God. Nurture that. The Bible even talks about those who would be in spiritual leadership, but who would neglect their home. And if their home is out of order, their wives and their children, that that man is disqualified from the ministry. Well, they're on their way. Verse 20. Moses said to them, If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war... And all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out the enemies from before him. And the land is subdued before the Lord. And afterwards you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep, and do what has proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Notice in verse 23 the sin of not doing. You know, we often think sin is doing something wrong. You know that you can sin by not doing anything? Because basically the word sin, harmatia, means to miss the mark. There are sins of commission, that is, deliberately doing something wrong. But there are sins of omission. Not doing what God has commanded. And uh, verse 5, once again. uh, Verse 6, he says, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Okay, fine, you said you'll go, go. But if you just sit here and you don't do anything, know that you have sinned from before the Lord. 
Now, there's a lot of people who will take pride in the fact that they are stalwart believers and they don't murder and they don't smoke and they don't chew and they don't go with girls that do. And they'll pat themselves on the back and say, I'm a nice little church-going person. Well, great. But what do you do? Not just what do you not do. What do you do? Are you serving the Lord? There's plenty of needs to be met. There's plenty of souls that need to hear about Christ. There's plenty of children in this Sunday school that would love you to be able to teach them about Jesus Christ. There's prayer meetings to go to. There's ways to minister in the prisons, in the detention centers. You could say, no, I just love my cows getting fat right here in Gilead. I don't want to go any further and actually grow and actually do something. Verse 26. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, all of our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will cross over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. Moses commanded concerning them to Eleazar, gave command uh, to the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Then the children of Gad, the children of Reuben, answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We will cross over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, but the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. They're making this public. So Moses gave to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, the land with the cities within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country. And the children of Gad built Debon and Ataroth and Arior and all these other names that are listed in the next verses. And uh, verse 39. The children... The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead, took it, dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh. Actually, it would probably be pronounced Machir, if you want to be Hebrew-speaking about it. Also, Jer, or Yair, the son of Manasseh, went and took its small towns and called them Havot Yair. And Nobah went and took Kenath and its villages, and he called it Noba after his own name. <laughs> now, uh, notice one uh, verse before we move on into the next chapter. It says in verse 23, Moses tells them, If you don't do it, be sure that your sin will find you out. Now, I've heard that scripture a little bit misapplied. It's the idea that, you know, if you do this, pretty soon people are going to find out your sins but that's not always true. There's lots of unbelievers that skate through life and they cover it all up. The idea is your sin will find you out. It will follow you. Whatever you sow, you will reap. You may not reap it in this life, but you will reap it. You may experience that payback now or you may experience it later on. You can't hide anything from God. 
You might think, man, I have gotten by with a lot of stuff and nobody's found out. Yet, you know, Jesus said something I read the other day and it, it arrested my attention. The crowds were gathering around Jesus in the Galilee, so much so that people were running over each other. And at that point, Jesus turned to his disciples because he just had a confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, and he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is an ancient term that means to wear a mask, to cover up who you really are, to put on spiritual airs. Beware of hypocrisy. It's the sin of these spiritual leaders. Then he said, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. There is nothing hidden that shall not be made known. There will come a time when everything will be opened up as we stand before God. Now, all of us will stand before God. For unbelievers, it says the books will be opened. They'll stand before the great white throne judgment of God. And it says their names were not found written in the book and they'll be cast into outer darkness. When it gets to my name and your name, if you are in Christ Jesus, the great thing is there's this great blotter of forgiveness that's been applied to our account. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses a man from all sin. And I'll stand before God and there will be a judgment for every believer. Not the same judgment as for an unbeliever but what the Bible calls the Bema seat, the seat of rewards. You will either get a reward for what you did as a believer, or you will lose your reward, depending on what you did or did not do. But we'll all stand before God. Your sins will find you out. Now, if you're a Christian, all of your sins have been put to Jesus' cross, and they're covered. But now, your position in the kingdom of God, it says in the book of Corinthians, will be largely determined upon your faithfulness upon this earth. It doesn't mean you'll get to heaven by your works or by your faithfulness. Oh, God forbid. You're in Christ, period. That's how you get saved. But your position in the kingdom will be determined upon your works, good or bad. So to these uh, tribes, your sin will find you out. Books will be opened. Chapter 33, these are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And uh, these are the starting, these are the journeys according to their starting points. They departed from Ramses, that is the ancient city of Tanis. You remember that from Indiana Jones, perhaps? Maybe not. In the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, the first day after Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, I've got to tell you something. I think this is a boring chapter. With all due respect to the Word of God, uh, because uh, it doesn't concern me all that much, it really is uh, laborious. Because all it is, is a travel log of where they started, where they stopped, where they picked up, where they stopped. And it's all desert encampments for 40 years. There's really nothing to fill in the blanks. There's no stories about what happened. They cover the 40 years wanderings only by the places. So it's kind of like a road map. You know, Moses took out his little book and said, we stopped here, we started here, and we stopped here. And it goes all the way through the chapter, or largely through the chapter, that way. 
That's the life of a carnal believer. There's nothing really eventful. You can't write much about the blessings of God. It's just been there, done that, did this, got up in the morning, went to work, came home. I mean, there's no real purpose and and direction in their life. They're not under the control of the Spirit. How would it be if a friend went to Europe on vacation and you were excited to hear about it? Tell me about Europe. Well, I... Flew to London, took the boat across to Calais, France, and drove from Paris, and then drove from Paris down to, uh, um, um, what's the place? No, um, who cares? Anyway, from city to city. And, uh, and they, you know, that's, that's all they tell you. Went there, did that, you know, just went from place to place. You want to hear what they did. You don't want just a road map, and basically that's what this is. But there are a couple interesting things in it. Number one... Even though they were unfaithful, God was with them every step of the way. And the fact that God would even want to record this chapter, to me, is significant. Forty wasted years, but God loved them and was with them anyway. I'm tired of people talking about how faithful they are to God. And, oh, this person really is faithful to God and really loves God. Let me tell you something. It's God who's with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a wonderful promise. The children of Israel really weren't with God much of the time anyway. But God was with them all the way. It's God's faithfulness that this chapter records. But look at verse 4. This is significant, I believe. For the Egyptians, they're speaking about the Passover from verse 3. The children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying all of their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgment. The plagues of Egypt were given to answer a challenge given by Pharaoh. If you saw the movie Moses this last week, you notice that they called Pharaoh the great Egypt. They deified Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered to be a god, deity in human flesh, the incarnation of God upon the earth. They called Pharaoh Neter Nefer, the perfect god. That's what they called him. And when Moses came and he said, and I like the way Ben Kingsley played him this week, he didn't come like Charlton Heston and say, let my people go. He said, let my people go. Go. He stuttered. In fact, they made fun of him in the movie. That's accurate because he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. He said it probably shyly. And you remember Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Okay, God was about to introduce himself now to Moses. Oh, you want to know who I am, huh? Okay, here I come. And God, through the plagues, introduced himself to Moses and judged the gods, including Pharaoh. For instance, the firstborn of all the children were to be dedicated to the gods of Egypt. God called Israel my firstborn. Whom did Pharaoh seek to kill when Moses was a baby? The firstborn males. God said, they're my firstborn. And I'm going to show you You know, you want to have a battle of the gods here? All right, I'll take your firstborn because he hardened his heart. And each of the plagues was a judgment on the gods of Egypt. 
For instance, they worshiped the Nile. They had a prayer, and they called the Nile River Father Nile because the Nile River was important to one of the chief gods, Osiris. And because he was the giver of life in the land of Egypt, they worshiped the Nile River, so God struck it with blood. There was a temple in Egypt to Heka, the frog god. It was unlawful in Egypt to kill a frog because it was a god. So can you imagine how frustrating to wake up with frogs all over you? In your bed, rivet. In your shoes, rivet. In the stove, rivet. They're everywhere. You can't kill them. They're sacred. Oh, our precious God, Heka. Oh, you love gods, do you? You love those frogs. Well, have a heyday. They also worshipped Ra, the sun god, and it was darkness over Egypt as God judged that deity. They worshipped Geb, the god of the earth, and so all of the dust of Egypt became lice. They worshipped Apis, the bull, and so God judged that god by striking with pestilence all of the livestock. Who is the Lord? Hello. God is the God who can hold your life in his hands. And finally, he let them go. Okay, you can go all the way down, and if you'd like to look at all those verses, you can just skip over them, and you can see that there's a list of names. It's, a, uh, it's like a road map, but God was with them every step of the way. And then we get down to verse 50, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab. And really, this is the highlight of the book of Numbers. This is the pinnacle of the book. It's the very heart of the book. They've gone through the wilderness. They're now perched on the edge of the land. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, Destroy all their engraved stones. Destroy all of their molded images. Demolish their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. You shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you give a larger inheritance. To the smaller you give a smaller inheritance. Therefore, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes, thorns in your side, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. So God says, go in, break down the high places, these large mounds, the highest part of every city, had a temple in the high spot, the high place. And outside the city in the groves on the mountains were high places for worship. Break them down, destroy them, get rid of them, and drive these people out of the land. Now, a lot of people ask me to explain God as if I have to defend him. Why would a God of love, you know, do this? And it's reprehensible and it's indefensible that God would kick out such innocent people from their land and have the children. First of all, I don't need to explain anything about God. God does, doesn't need my defense. Uh, I'm not his lawyer and God won't say, Skip, please stick up for me now, please. You know, I'm really weak in this area. I don't need to... to I may not comprehend everything in the scripture, but I can apprehend it by faith. He said it. That's all I need. But it's interesting, the liberal and the skeptic who like to use this argument, and I've had a lot of them come up to me and, and uh, 
you know, they're the American liberal skeptical church. And how could a God of love tell them to dispossess their land? It's interesting. While they are telling me this, they're standing on land that they and themselves are the inheritance of. And they've dispossessed the Indians who were once in this land. And yet they're telling me that God is unfair and, and uh, should give it back. Really? It's like the pot calling the kettle black, I would say. Also, all you have to do is look at archaeology. Poor innocent people, the Canaanites, the Amorites. Any good archaeologist who has dug in that area and found potsherds, inscriptions, digs from the cities where the Canaanites possessed, will tell you about them. The ancient cultures were rampant with venereal disease. It was killing off large populations of Canaan because of their lewd worship, their sexual immorality. Secondly, they have found pots, and inside these clay jars are the bones of babies, infants. Because it was a practice in Canaan, whenever you dedicate your house, you take your firstborn child or a young infant, and you stuff it in the jar, and you sacrifice it to the gods, dedicating your child to dedicate that house. And they find it in the doorposts of the house, where the uh, um, adobe, where the mud will adjoin some of the posts, they'll, and in the gates of the city, they'll find clay jars with the bones of infants. Then there was the god, the god Molech, who was a little image, uh, and it had metal arms that came out with cupped upright hands, and they would take and put this in the fire until it became white hot. And they would take their little children and burn alive their children in the red hot arms of Molech. Now, God gave him 400 years. He told Abraham, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to grow there and you're going to become a mighty nation. But you can't have the land yet, even though I'm going to promise you the land, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God gave them over 400 years to change their tune, and they became more wicked. And besides that, the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's his real estate. And he, it was time for a new occupant. And so he says, take it, go and take and destroy all of the high places and take the land that I swore to give you. Now, chapter 34 Oh, excuse me, the last verse of the chapter. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So, it's your land. It's a blessing. Go for it. Do what I told you to do. Or, they'll become snares to you, irritants to you, and, and this is the frightening part, I'll do to you what I thought to do to them. Heavy responsibility. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this land shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan, uh, to its boundaries. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. And uh, so he tells them the borders of the land. From the Mediterranean all the way up to the area of Tyre and Lebanon, which is in the news these days, all the way down toward the Sinai where the river of Egypt is. And... uh, uh, the Jordan River, and then, of course, the two and a half tribes were to occupy uh, east of that. And then leaders were appointed to divide the land. I think I'll save a few highlights of this chapter and uh, finish up the book next week. And uh, we'll, all, we'll take it all as a unit, chapter 34, 35, and 36. And um, 
then we're done with the book. We have one more week in this book. It's been about 17 weeks in this uh, book of Numbers. And, uh, but soon we will wander no more. And uh, we'll now be in the Gospel of John after this on Sunday nights. And uh, it's so exciting, the Gospel of John, that I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm thinking I should cover John Sunday morning and Sunday night. It's so exciting. Uh, it's certainly geared toward evangelism. And uh, we'll see what God does. So next week will be our last study in this book of Numbers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And we are reminded of that scripture in Deuteronomy where Moses said, The Lord God brought you out that he might bring you in to a new land. Lord, you have brought us out of a life of sin, of a hopeless future, of a lifestyle apart from Jesus Christ, no hope you brought us out of that, not to leave us wandering, but to bring us into a land of full blessing. Lord, I pray that we would not be border believers, carnal Christians, that we would not sit in one place while others go in and take the land and others go in and fight the battles. Lord, I pray that we would jump into the battle with your armor, your strength, finding our gifts, being involved in the spread of your work and the edification of your church, lest we rob the body of the gifts that you have given to us to share with them. And then, Father, show us our portion, the tribal allotments that belong to us, where we are to spread our roots and to minister and to be effective. Lord, you're calling people in this assembly in a variety of ways, I believe. You're calling some of them to go out to foreign fields, the mission field. You've given them a land to plow that is far away from home. But it's a land of promise for them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You have so many spiritual blessings ahead. As you call these different ones in the body of Christ, may they be responsive to heed that call and to go out in your strength. Lord, you're calling others to go plant new churches, new fellowships in other parts of the state and the country and the world. Lord, raise them up. You're calling encouragers. You're calling administrators. Father, we pray that as you tell us our gifts, that we would step out in faith and use them. Lord, we are weak. You are strong. We are simply vessels. You are the giver of the gift, and you're the one that makes that gift operate. So I pray that we would not look upon our weakness, upon what we don't have, and upon our smallness, but we would realize that we serve a great God who can do great things through simple people. And then use us, Father. Use us to touch this world in a way that we haven't even fathomed. Do, Lord, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we are able to ask or think.